the lifestyle of a bhikkhu practicing in the Dhamma Vinaya was established to support the practice of meditation, bhavana. All of us have come to live here or stay here out of an interest in meditation and the lifestyle of a Buddhist monastery where we practice according to the Dhamma Vinaya is set up to support the practice of meditation. The way we live, practice uh, simplicity, frugality, practice harmlessness, practicing uh, restraint in uh, our sila, and dedicated to developing mindfulness and insight. And this is the flavor of our lifestyle. It's all to support the training of the mind in order to realize the same truths that the Buddha and all the enlightened teachers since the time of the Buddha have realized. The Buddha was the Sasada, the foremost teacher that the world has seen. Realized the Four Noble Truths, Arya Satcha Dhamma, and then out of compassion explained them, taught them to others, and also out of compassion established the Bhikkhu system of training, the Vinaya. For those who are ready and able to go forth to practice, when we come to practice, we have to begin with a certain amount of faith, satha, in the Buddha and his words and the way of training because our starting point is not one of much experience or knowledge of the Dhamma Vinaya and the way to a transcend suffering we've only maybe had glimpses of insight so far in our lives so we have to take the way of training and practice on trust maybe we've read the teachings and it makes sense. We've met living teachers who inspire us. Maybe we've had our own experiences as well. But we have to build on that by using some faith, confidence, trust in the Buddha and the path of practice to motivate us. probably have some inkling that 
we've experienced some dukkha in our lives, we realize that, and this may be a way out of dukkha. So we're willing to commit to the training. And the training is about, you might say, proving what the Buddha taught for ourselves, coming to realize and know for ourselves through our own experience, not just based on what we remember or believe in or seems to make sense, but actually knowing and seeing clearly within our own minds. Now the Buddha had us develop the Eightfold Path, so we're developing all the right qualities, the right factors for us to really realize truth and free the mind from suffering. So we use all those factors together, sila, samadhi and panya. Whatever aspect of the practice or the training you're looking at, they're all, these factors are all supporting each other. You might narrow it down to just one moment of your day, of your life. So the eyes seeing a form, or the ears hearing a sound. Every moment we are experiencing objects, sense objects arising into consciousness. We have sense contact taking place all the time. Seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, smell. Or just mind objects contacting the mind internally. And if we meet <clears throat> all that sense contact from moment to moment with an unenlightened state of mind that's still caught up in delusion, ignorance, or conditioned by delusion, ignorance, then that sense contact will inevitably give rise to kilesa, greed, hatred, delusion, one form or another. This is where we're studying and learning in daily life. The external study, the external pariyati dhammas, the books, the talks, the internal pariyati is this study of actually what goes on in our experience as the eyes see a form, ears hear a sound, what happens? And the Buddha's explanation was based on Icca Pachayada, teaching of conditionality. Our experience is based on causes and conditions with an eye, a healthy eye, with light, with a, an object to be seen, and then eye consciousness arises. With eye consciousness, you get feeling and perception arise. With that, as a cause, then craving arises with craving as a cause, 
upadana, attachment arises and so on. And the Buddha explained this is the nature of our experience as human beings. It's based on causes and conditions. Because this exists, that comes into being. With this as a cause, that arises. When this cause ceases, that will cease. This is something we're looking at and learning. First of all, just intellectually, but then comparing what we've heard and read with our experience to see whether it's true or not. Looking to see whether it's true that everything comes down to causes and conditions or whether there's something more than that. The Buddha said in his experience there's nothing more than that. There's no external force or being controlling all this or determining what happens. Itabhachayata, it's causes and conditions in nature that affect each other. And this is just the way things are. There's no being or self in any of this, no lasting substantial essence or soul or whatever words we use. It's rather a, just a natural process of cause, causes and conditions arising in dependence on each other. This is what we're studying. The eyes see a form. Vaitana arises based on that contact, pleasant, unpleasant, or neither pleasant nor unpleasant. Sukha, dukkha, or upeka, vaitana. With that, craving arises. Ultimately, there's no person in all of that. If there's no sense contact, no feeling, no craving will arise. Or if there's mindfulness and insight at that point, sense contact gives rise to feeling, no craving arises. Feeling is just seen as feeling. This is where we're training ourselves, training in the development of mindfulness, clear comprehension. <coughs> training in bhavana, training in samatha bhavana, vipassana bhavana. We learn to analyze the Dhamma first, you know, we read it and learn it. But then in practice we're actually developing all these different qualities and aspects together. And Jen Charles said, Samatha and Vipassana don't really separate in our experience. On paper they do. Calm and insight. But for one who is really coming to see the Dhamma, see Dhamma as Dhamma, with a mind that is unbiased, without a sense of self, without craving an attachment taking over. And they're just seeing Dhamma as Dhamma. 
no sense of self. This comes through the practice of training in mindfulness in all postures, training in wise reflection, wise consideration of our experience. So on the very highest level, coming to see Dhamma as Dhamma, mind objects as mind objects, whether wholesome or unwholesome, as a very refined insight. Somebody who's developed very strong mindfulness, continuous mindfulness, a refined level of samadhi, and then developing insight based on that samadhi. The samadhi and the insight inseparable from each other. But in the beginning of our practice, maybe we can't yet do that. Can't yet completely, in a very detached, objective way, see a unwholesome state of mind as just unwholesome. A wholesome, skillful state of mind is wholesome, skillful state of mind without attaching. Very difficult. That's for somebody who maybe is very experienced in the practice and reached that point. Like Lumpur Tongrat develops his practice very quickly. Must have had a lot of merit, a lot of barami from past lives. One day going on Bindabhad as a young monk, he tended to be very direct in the way he talked to people. Someone was very stingy in the way they wouldn't offer him any food. So he told them off, just said, oh, you're a very stingy person. And they got angry, all their pride came up, got angry and started shouting back at him, oh, who are you to tell me I'm stingy, and so on. He just chuckled and said, ah, the Dhamma has arisen. Even though it was, for his ears, painful experience, unpleasant experience, the words of someone getting angry. He says, it's just Dhamma. Kilesa is Dhamma. The path, the Eightfold Path is Dhamma. Wholesome, unwholesome, these both are just Dhamma. Mind objects arising into our experience through sense contact. the mind of somebody very well trained in samadhi and panya. See the hindrances, they understand the five hindrances, what they are, how they arise, how they cease. They understand the dhammas that lead to enlightenment, the bodhipakya dhammas, 37 bodhipakya dhammas, the Eightfold Path, the five indriya, the five bala, Oedipadas and so on they have that clear insight and the detached awareness that they can see Dhamma as Dhamma in the beginning we maybe can't do that yet a wholesome object arises we see something pleasant maybe some greed, desire arises see something unpleasant some aversion arises we can't yet separate the mind from the Dhamma. So we attach to the unwholesome state of mind that arises. Or wholesome states arise through the practice. Practicing sila, mindfulness, samadhi, panya, 
we, maybe we still attach to them. We're not fully able to separate even the wholesome states from our experience. Nevertheless, this is what we have to do. We start developing mindfulness on whatever level we can. So we have mindfulness on the level of sila to keep our coarsest unwholesome behavior through body, speech and mind in check, keep it at bay. So we learn to live in a peaceful way with other people around us, with the world, interact with the world in a peaceful way, even if inside we still have kilesas arising, greed, anger, delusion. We don't display through our speech or our actions. This is how, what the Vinaya is treat, teaching us, just basic composure, restraint, being mindful of what we say and do, how we use the requisites, how we gain our requisites, how we talk to each other, how we act, Te encouraging us, teaching us to act skillfully, speak skillfully. And this supports the deepening of our practice of mindfulness so we actually can meditate and settle down quickly. You notice if you're keeping your precepts and your vinaya well, then the mind is in a more relaxed state, it's at ease. So when we come to sit or walk meditation, it settles down more easily, even though there may still be many distracting thoughts coming up or sleepiness to deal with. We're not having to process a lot of regret or confusion from our external behavior. So the sila is vital for the development of samadhi. And then samadhi is vital for the development of panya. We hear a lot about techniques of meditation. How you say panya develops samadhi, samadhi develops panya. Obviously these two qualities, two aspects of the practice support each other. But our aim really, particularly in the beginning of practice, is learning how to get beyond the hindrances to one point in the mind. And we use both mindfulness and insight to do this. And some people they find just contemplating, thinking about the Dhamma helps them to settle down, helps them to get through their doubts or their sleepiness or their worries and so on. Others just put their attention on their meditation object and just hold on to that. Bhutto, bhutto, or the breathing, breathing in, breathing out. And they just stick with their meditation object and do it long enough and well enough that the mind starts to settle down and the hindrances start to fade out. Others have to use wisdom. You might even call it vipassana. We do develop different techniques of vipassana, contemplating the arising, passing away of our experience, our thoughts and feelings. Probably Lumpur Tongrat and other teachers would say, well, it's not really true vipassana yet, because the mind is not yet one-pointed and detached. We're really able to see an object arising <coughs> and passing away through experience not ready to do that. 
but we can still call it vipassana. You might call it a small vipassana or basic vipassana, where we're just contemplating all these thoughts and distractions that are coming and going as impermanent, arising and ceasing. Sometimes <clears throat> that's all it takes, just noticing your own thoughts, sensations coming and going, arising and ceasing, and just sticking with that, being mindful of impermanence. If you keep contemplating impermanence in your experience of your own candors, sounds coming and going, feelings, pleasure and pain, thoughts arising, passing away, you just keep doing that, you become familiar with noticing, seeing impermanence, the transient nature of experience. So the mind can become more and more detached, and little by little settles down. And you get to know what is what. You've seen thoughts arise and pass away dozens and dozens of times. You've Establish mindfulness and sing, oh, this is impermanent. However good or bad, however high and refined or however low and coarse, the thought just arises, passes away. You've seen it before, you're seeing it right now. You can assume, well, it would be just the same in the future as well. So wherever you look, you can see the nature of thought formations, mental formations is impermanent. Feelings. Emotions are impermanent. Feelings of pleasure and pain, impermanent. In the past they were arising, passing away. Right now they are arising, passing away. In the future they're going to continue arising, passing away. Little by little you're teaching your mind to let go using, you might say, the technique of vipassana, of insight meditation but bringing the mind to come, become weary of attaching to every thought, every sensation, every feeling. You know, all the experience that we have that tends to clog up the mind when we're trying to meditate. This is a de-clogging process of just seeing it's all transient. In whatever form, near or far, high or low, coarse or refined, past, present, future, doesn't really change. The mind becomes more familiar that way. It gets weary of attaching and craving and lets go. So then it's easier to settle down and follow the breath going in and out. Because everything else is just impermanent. You might call this wisdom developing samadhi. What is impermanent is dukkha. It doesn't last and cannot last in its nature. What cannot last cannot bring you lasting happiness. So however important or interesting or mind-grabbing the mental state and the mood the thought is, it's just that much. It arises, passes, passes away. It's nothing that will bring us any lasting happiness. It's dukkha. doesn't endure, doesn't last. And because it doesn't last, it's quite difficult to bear with after a while. You start to experience the oppressive nature of the candas because they arise and pass away constantly fooling us into believing in them holding on to them 
Little by little one's developing a higher awareness and insight which brings more detachment, more peace. What is impermanent, what is dukkha is also not self. It's without any being in charge, owning this experience, controlling it, things go according to causes and conditions. Vaitana arises because of sense contact, whether it's pleasant, unpleasant or neutral. One thing leads to another. All this prolifer pro mental proliferation we're experiencing has its causes. When the causes pass, then the proliferation passes. You have a pleasant object come into your experience, pleasant feeling arise, well it sets off one mode of mental proliferation, craving and attachment arising, interest, fascination, expectation, desire and so on. But then it passes. You have another experience, maybe some unpleasant experience, some painful experience arises, sets off another set of proliferation, negative proliferation based around aversion. But that also arises and then ceases. You keep looking and watching long enough, you can see mm, this is all just a process. There's not really any person owning or controlling it. It's just one thing set off by another, one thing arising dependent on another. As conditions change, well, the experience changes. As this ceases, well, that will cease. As this arises, that arises. As this ceases, that ceases. So little by little the mind is coming to understand Anicca Dukkha Anatta more clearly. But probably what really makes that insight profound and really gets the mind to really believe it properly or accept it properly is the one-pointedness that comes as we continue our mindfulness practice. As those individual drops of mindfulness falling, like the water falling from the tap, join up to become a continuous stream, then the awareness of an Ichidukha Anatta is more clear, more sustained, so the mind really starts to understand it and accept it. No longer just uh, something one believes in or thinks about, but one actually knows and sees without doubt. This is the kind of result we can expect, all of us can become more familiar with reflecting in this way on our own experience. This is how we deal with the hindrances, little by little. Mm sense desire, aversion and ill will, sloth and torpor, restlessness, agitation and doubt, skeptical doubt. And these are what are constantly overwhelming the mind, taking the mindfulness and the insight away. But as we become more in, used to looking at our own mind, we get better at sorting out what is what, knowing a hindrance as a hindrance knowing how to abandon it quickly, what techniques, what dhammas will lead to that hindrance passing and ceasing. 
even knowing what dhammas lead it, lead to hindrances arising in the first place. We become smarter and more skilled in understanding our own mind. It's obvious in the beginning of practice we have a lot of doubt, skeptical doubt. Often in our culture we see it as a virtue, not to believe anything too easily. To keep looking, to keep being suspicious of, being skeptical of things we hear, things other people say. But often we don't see doubt as doubt, as a hindrance. It still tends to be directed outwards from ourselves, skeptical about things around us, what we've heard and learned. We're not looking back at ourselves yet. What we have to do in our meditation is turn around, look in, inwards and see doubt as doubt and recognize it for what it is. See how it undermines our efforts in the practice. Obviously, we can question things and challenge our own assumptions and experiences. It's not wrong, but if it keeps undermining our efforts to the point where you just give up the practice, give up the meditation, doubt to the point where you don't want to do anything, then obviously it will just lead to unwholesome states of mind arising leads to more suffering. If you can recognize doubt as doubt, you can quickly set it aside and say, I know this is just a doubt, this is not leading anywhere, this is just leading to more suffering, more unhappiness. So you quickly set it aside. Doubt is probably the biggest initial hurdle we have to get over because it makes us want to stop. And the only one who's really going to get progress in the practice is one who doesn't stop. When doubt comes up then we say, um, this is not the right meditation object, this is not the right place, the right system of practice, the right teacher, the right time. On and on and on we go. We doubt ourselves, I can't do it. I'm not the right kind of person to do this, and so on. So it'll undermine our efforts from the beginning. We have to become very sharp and keep turning back on the doubt. Sloth and torpor, another one. We become familiar with the hindrances, so we, when you become familiar with something, it sets up habits. Let's call it a calm kind of karma, a karmic habits, familiarity. So we actually get used to falling into hindrances. Now if we never really work against them, well, we'll just keep reinforcing them even. So we can get into careless or unskillful habits with meditation even, just learning or just becoming familiar with falling asleep or with sleepiness different times of day. Sometimes we become used to dullness, so we're happy just to be dull, be lethargic. The Buddha, if you read the suttas or you listen to the teachers, is always about arousing energy, not giving in to dullness and lethargy and apathy. We have to learn how to arouse that energy ourselves, to go against the habit. In the end, our mind is conditioned by what it's familiar and used to. 
So the hindrances reinforce themselves over and over again through repeated falling into a hindrance. You keep getting sleepy, well you, it's easier to get sleepy the more you do it. If you're one who keeps getting angry about things, well that will be reinforcing that habit. You know, all the hindrances can become worse and worse if we let them go, let them have their way simply by familiarity. We get used to them. So we also have to get to know our own character. Where are our particular weak spots? And often we overlook some of the most glaring habits of mind. Because we're so familiar with them, we're so used to them, we just don't notice. Whereas some of the other hindrances which are more rare in our experience, well we notice them straight away. So often you know, we might be somebody who's always falling into negativity. As soon as there's a little bit of lust or greed, we jump on it straight away. Very quick to uh, organize ourselves and the way we reflect and establish mindfulness, let go of it. But the underlying aversion we don't even notice. Sleepiness is like that. And often we just become so used to becoming dull and sleepy that we hardly even see it as a hindrance. Someone was saying the other day they get so sleepy they just stop their car at a red light. Already they're falling asleep. You can build up that much momentum in life literally if somebody stops doing any activity they sit down they just start nodding off straight away. Hindrances can be like that and they become stronger and more deeply ingrained in our character. So we have to develop skillful means, both effort and wisdom, to really overcome them. But just as the hindrances can reinforce themselves, well, so can the Dhamma. Well practiced can reinforce itself. Yeah. The factors, the Eightfold Path, Sila Samadhi Panya reinforces itself the more you practice. So it gets easier to keep the precepts and follow the Vinaya. It's easier to practice the Brahmaviharas. It gets easier to develop mindfulness. You'll find if you practice meditation regularly, even though there's plenty of hurdles and obstacles to go through, you might find that sometimes even you're just sitting down and your legs haven't even properly crossed yet. And already the mind just wants to go into peace. Mindfulness is right there. Without the second effort, it's already just coming up quite naturally. That's a result of all that previous practice you've been doing. If you keep inclining the mind to the practice of mindfulness, wise reflection, overcoming the hindrances, well, sometimes quite naturally it will do that. All aspects of the practice, the more used to the practice we get, the more familiar with them, well, they can, that can be a strength. Can, we can become used to overcoming the hindrances, letting them go, abandoning them. Someone was saying about a story from Thailand, this beggar who was spending many years begging in one of the Bangkok monasteries as a man with disabled 
had malformed legs from birth, so he couldn't work, couldn't move very well, had to crawl around. Spent all his time sitting on one corner of the temple compound with a little tin, everybody goes past, he'd collect money just to keep himself alive, get food, buy a few things. But over and over again, seeing people go into the temple to offer dana, make offerings, donations, he always had the thought, mm, maybe I should do that one day, it might make me happy. So after many, many years, he went up to the abbot one day when they're building a hall, he said, I want to make a donation towards building the hall. Bought out a plastic bag full of coins and notes and gave over a million baht towards the building of the monastery. And the monks were all surprised. Oh, this is a beggar. Where did he get all this money? He said, I've just been keeping it these years and every day I see people coming into the monastery to make offerings. Always had this thought to make an offering. So it really stuck in his mind. Habitual karma is like that. If you keep developing wholesome states of mind, virtues, mindfulness, keeping the precepts, practicing generosity, kindness, keep reflecting on impermanence, well, it starts to become a good habit of mind. It gets easier and becomes norm more normal for the mind to operate in that way. Little by little, that's how you're going to free yourself from suffering. The only way we can do it is to keep bringing up the factors of the path. Sila Samadhi Panya, Dana Sila Bhavana. When we do get beyond the hindrances, we have those moments of clarity, well then that's when the mind experiences a sense of letting go of the body, the sense of emptiness or freedom, not just freedom from the hindrances, but freedom from this attachment to the, to the body, the heaviness of the body, the sensations, the pleasure and pain, and the mind goes to more of a state of calm, equanimity. Equanimity and calm, or tranquility, tranquility of body and mind. That's the basis for really developing insight. Because the mind is, when the mind is more equanimous and it's more free, you can really look back and see that the identification with the body and the candors is the cause of suffering. This identification or attachment, you know, it's a mental thing, it has its causes, and the causes are ignorance lack of mindfulness, lack of investigation of Dhamma. When the mind's free from the hindrances and we investigate the Dhamma, now we can see, well, this is the way to release. There's that sense of letting go. Even if it's only temporary, then we can at least see, well, this will lead to more letting go in the future. It's still a causal process. When you let go once, well, it will help you to let go again. You experience emptiness once, will it be a cause for experiencing emptiness again? Little by little, this insight is becoming more refined, more established. Maybe not just when we're meditating, sitting or walking, but just in any posture, any activity.
sense of emptiness arising. And the mind is most suitable for contemplation, wise consideration. You might look back at your own body, reflecting on it. It's just made up of the four elements. And these elements, again, are just causes and conditions that come together to make a human body work. But they're without self. They're impermanent and without self. Earth, air, fire, water. Yeah, there's no self in any of that. And that's all a human body is. What makes it work is consciousness and karma. And the body itself is just earth, air, fire and water. So when the mind becomes calm and one-pointed, you look back at the body, you can see there's nothing in there that you can grasp at or identify with as self. Little by little the mind starts to accept that, so it becomes weary of the whole process of craving and grasping at the body, the senses, the pleasures of the senses and so on. We see how temporary and limited they are. See the unattractiveness of the body. You know, when the mind is calm, you can really look at your own body very closely and deeply. We have to do that. It's something we tend to be a little bit lazy with. You probably let many days go by when you don't really contemplate your own body and look at it seriously. When you're peaceful, really take the time. Go through the 32 parts. Ask yourself, why do you grasp this body as a self and why do you look for happiness in something that's very unpleasant, very temporary, unpleasant. You just peel the skin back and it will be very unpleasant, smelly, not nice to be with. Nobody would want to live with a corpse. And yet this corpse we're, we have here is with us all the time. We just overlook it. You have to use the peace of the mind to really contemplate the nature of the body, its unattractive side, the four elements, and then all the happiness and sadness, pleasure and pain we have experienced, we experience based on the attachment to this body, the whole five candors. Ultimately there is no, nothing permanent in any of it. What was impermanent last year is impermanent now and will be impermanent next year, next life as well. Candors don't last, rise and cease. And the more familiar we become with that reflection then the more it helps the mind to free itself from delusion. You notice when mindfulness is weak and then kilesa can pop up so quick even if you have had an experience of peace from your meditation, what we might call a good meditation, you can finish your sitting or your walking, you go off, and then within a few seconds, very strong emotional reactions can come up. Lust can come up, anger can come up, depression and sadness can come up. So only through really being very thorough and very continuous with our investigation of 
and each Dukkanata will that that experience change. You'll start to have some antidote to the, the mind that just falls into strong emotional states. Happiness, despair, greed, anger and delusion in all its forms. Little by little that sense of detached awareness, detached knowing of the way things are becomes more established. So the mind just doesn't want to go into a state of lust or a state of anger. Even if it arises, the conditions are still there for it to arise, the mind just wants to drop it rather than indulge it and hold on to it. If you keep dropping them, well, the mind gets more used to that. It's happier to do that, happier to let go. Finds happiness in letting go, abandoning Kilesa, rather than holding on. There's no doubt anymore. The mind knows, mm, this is better, but it gives me more happiness to see this as impermanent suffering, not self, rather than try and find some kind of permanence or happiness in it. So I'll leave you with these thoughts for your reflection tonight.